BC is a special place. Um, I, I love the coffee, the culture, and the mountains. I love living near the city and near the U.S. border. I love that you can ski in the mountains and then go spend a day at the beach in the exact same day. Um, and BC is known for many things, okay? So, uh, for instance, it is the birthplace of the London fog, uh, the California roll, and Botox. Yes, Botox. So, if you want a latte made without coffee, I don't know why would you want that, but you can have that. If you would like a sushi roll made with fake crab, or if you need a bit of work done to your face, we've got you covered, okay? Years before any of that, BC was known for the gold rush, and not the lottery ticket, the actual gold rush. Thousands of miners moved here in pursuit of finding a fortune. They left their homes, their families, and their lives behind to get rich. They were like Indiana Jones on the pursuit of treasure. And decades later, in a very small town, just four and a half hours north of here, lived a woman named Alice. And one day, Alice is out in her garden, and she's gardening, and she notices this large rock in the middle of her garden, and it was far too big for her to move. So she began to polish it with sandpaper. Her logic was that if it was going to remain there, it might as well look beautiful. And so she sanded it down with, with sandpaper to make it a centerpiece in her garden. And as she began to polish it, she noticed that gold dust was coming from the stone. And she got so excited. She began thinking about all the wealth that she was going to get, what she was going to do with it. And so she sanded and sanded and sanded. She put her whole weight into it. Her heart started racing as she realized that she just uncovered a valuable treasure. The days of the gold rush were long over, decades over, in fact, but not for her. She just hit the jackpot. She would be rich, scandalously rich. And so she, what she did was she, she stopped sanding, took off her glove, and uh, swiped her finger across the stone, and her finger glimmered with gold dust. She, she became captivated by the allure of wealth, and she sanded faster and faster and faster, and then... She looked down at her hand and realized that she just sanded her wedding ring down to her finger. What she thought was actually the pursuit of treasure was actually wearing away the one thing she had left of her husband. She thought that she was uh, finding treasure, but she was actually wasting away the thing that mattered most to her. And so as she, she worked hard to reveal that gold stone, she wore away her precious wedding ring. And so many of us are doing the exact same thing. We're wearing our lives thin, pursuing gold, fool's gold. And at what cost? Another date night skipped, another opportunity to hold our kids vanished away, another opportunity to breathe light in and live deeply slips away from our hands. The one thing we can never get back are the thousand moments that have passed us by. We think that we're pursuing the good life, working hard, putting in extra hours, keeping our heads down for the one days and the Sundays, not realizing that that life is right here and right now, and we're wearing it thin. We miss out on moments with our kids, our spouses, and the ones that we love most. We skip over moments that we'll just never get back. Our kids will never be this young again. We'll never have that date night back to do over, and in the end, our only regret will be that we never really lived. So we can live at such a pace that we miss out on the very lives we've been given by God. We can live not realizing that the best years of our lives might be the ones that we are living right here and right now. And in many ways, I've been living like this. I've been working for the last year every single Friday, which is supposed to be my day off. There's so many moments where instead of spending time with the rally, spend time writing something or reading a book or working on something. And I've lived so fast and frantic that there are so many days that just slipped and vanished before my eyes. 
I'm letting moments pass me by that I will never get back. And my guess is I'm not alone. Many of us feel like we're just going through life, hurried and exhausted, never really living. We go from workday to workday, but we never have the capacity to truly live. We feel anxious and tired. We feel burned out and exhausted, and there's no light at the, at the end of the tunnel. And we keep telling ourselves, like, like I keep telling myself, that we're working for the future, that we're doing this for our families and our loved ones, but we're building rhythms into our lives that will be hard to break, and those rhythms keep us from living life here and now with the ones that we love. Many of us are simply too busy and distracted to take life by the horns and really live them. We are living at such a fast pace that we're skimming our lives instead of living them. We're too busy and frantic that any free time that we do have, we spend it numbing ourselves with entertainment and social media. So we, we never get to that date night. We aren't that intentional parent that we told ourselves we wanted to be. We're too busy to share uh, Jesus with our neighbor that we've never really had the time to get to know. And soon enough, life will pass us by and the life we wanted was never lived because we were too busy. I remember being 10 years old and my parents uh, had some friends over and my mom made a cheesecake for after dinner. And to my 10 year old brain, cheese and cake going together was disgusting, okay? I just didn't get it. But when I took my first bite of cheesecake, everything clicked and made sense, okay? So when I had that cheesecake, I scarfed that thing down before anyone could blink. And then I asked my mom for another. My mom looked at me and said, did you even taste the first one? And from then on, my mom would always say to me, every time she gave me cheesecake, savor the flavor. And I realized that I had to slow down if I was ever going to enjoy anything. And in a similar way, I think we can live at such a fast pace that our lives flash before our eyes. We don't taste and see how good it is. We rush through life, never slowing down enough to enjoy them. We go at such a pace that's over before we enjoyed our lives. And Jesus once said, what good is it if we gain the entire world yet lose our souls? In other words, there is a way to live in which we get everything we ever wanted and yet forfeit our lives in the process. What if this isn't the way we were meant to live? What if what Jesus was getting at when he said, when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? What if God actually, I know this is a crazy thought, created the world in such a way that we stop every seven days and live deeply? And what if one day live differently changes the way we live all seven days of the week? Let's take a look at what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter two. Look at verse 23. On Sabbath or one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. They're having a snack. The Pharisee said to them, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he, he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave, them to, uh, gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now we usually read a story like this and think that the Pharisees are prudish and outdated hypocrites, right? We, we tend to think that they're strict rule followers like Angela from The Office or Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? We think that Sabbath keeping was an outdated ritual or rule that Jesus came to save us and liberate us from. 
But the Sabbath was one of the most important commands to the people of God all throughout Scripture. In fact, it, it is part of the created order. In Genesis, we read that God made the world in six days, and then he himself rested on the seventh to show us how to live. God set up a rhythm of working six days and resting on the seventh, and, and this wasn't just how to live for one day, but about how to arrange your whole existence. And it was woven into the fabric of creation, the DNA of everything that God created from the very beginning, thousands of years before the law. Sabbath was established as the climactic moment of creation. It was the moment when God stepped back after creating a good world and saying, what a beaut, right? God created the world and then rested long enough to actually enjoy it. And the crazy thing is he invites us to do this with him. He created us to rule over, subdue the earth, to fill it, to, to, to join him in creating. But he also invites us into resting on the Sabbath with him. The created order is six days of work and one day of rest. See, if Sabbath is part of the original created order, then it means um, it's how we were meant or intended to live. God designed us for six days of work and one day of rest. So to argue whether or not we should Sabbath is like arguing whether or not we should drink water, sleep, or breathe air. You can resist the created order if you'd like, but if you do it long enough, you'll die, okay? When we're tempted to think that we shouldn't Sabbath, we've got to remember that even God Sabbath. I love how Exodus 31, 17 puts it. On the seventh day, God rested and was refreshed. This is the way God hardwired us to live. It's part of creation. It's woven into our DNA. We were created for six days of work and one day of rest. In the same way that God created us, male and female, and that is part of the DNA of creation. Part of the DNA of creation is six days of work and one day of rest. I remember I did this internship uh, during college. We, we did an internship in, in Vegas, and there's this one guy who interned with me, and he, he was adamant about never taking a day off of ministry. He was just so zealous. And uh, I remember this lady went up to him once and said, like, hey, what's the deal? Like, why don't you take a day off? And he told her, the devil never takes a day off, so neither will I. And he's just like super zealous for God. And she looked at him and said, that's really great, but we don't imitate the devil. We imitate God. And even God rested. So not only is Sabbath part of the created order, it is also one of the Ten Commandments. And it's by far the longest of the Ten Commandments. Um, while most of the commandments are like four words long, you shall not murder, uh, this command, the Sabbath command, is 94 words long, longer than any other command. It's actually longer than the last five of the Ten Commandments combined, okay? It's also placed at the center of the Ten Commandments, making it the central command to the people of God. Now, the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commands that you and I brag about breaking in our culture. Like, nobody's walking around being like, bragging about committing adultery or, or theft or murder, but we brag about breaking this command. We talk about how many days we've worked without taking a day off, but the Sabbath was part of the created order, the central command in the Ten Commandments, but more importantly, it is a gift <clears throat> to be enjoyed. Um, <clears throat> there are two times in the Old Testament that the Ten Commandments are listed, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. And both times, the Ten Commandments are almost identical, but there's a couple subtle changes. Um, in Exodus, we're told to Sabbath because God created the world in six days, and then he rested. But ironically, in Deuteronomy, we're given another reason. Instead of the, the rhythm of creation, 
God tells us in Deuteronomy to Sabbath because we're no longer slaves in Egypt. See, Exodus remembers Eden, but Deuteronomy remembers Egypt. In Eden, we learn to imitate God's rhythm. In Egypt, we were liberated from the world's rhythm. So the Exodus command is about imitation, imitating God. But Deuteronomy is about liberation. See, Sabbath is a refusal to go back to Egypt. It's a refusal to become a slave to work at the cost of freedom. See, Israel was supposed to Sabbath not because it's not only because it's part of the way God created us to live, but also because they're not slaves anymore. For hundreds of years, the people uh, of Israel were slaves in Egypt. For hundreds of years, they couldn't Sabbath. They couldn't rest because they were slaves. And so God reminds them, you're not slaves anymore. And I think we need to hear that today. See, we, what we often call freedom in our culture, God calls slavery. We think that if we work ourselves to the bone and don't trust God enough to Sabbath, that we'll get ahead and get everything we ever wanted. And the scary thing is we might, but we'll find ourselves back in Egypt. See, what if life is actually supposed to be different, fuller, richer, more meaningful? And, and what if life isn't just about working, but in the words of scripture, what if it's about enjoying the fruit of your labor? What if God gave us the Sabbath, not as a burden to be endured, but as a gift to be enjoyed? It's actually what the prophet Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 58. He writes, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy. Notice that we're told to call the Sabbath a delight. In other words, it's a gift to be enjoyed. And then in verse 14, it says that if you treat the Sabbath like a gift and practice it, that you'll find your joy. In other words, Sabbath is a gift that's supposed to lead to delight and joy. It's a gift, not a burden. So here's the question we, we should be asking about the Pharisees. What in the world are they so worked up about? Jesus and his followers are practicing Sabbath, but they're calling it a delight. They're eating a snack. They're walking through a grain field and taking some of the grain and eating it. Like, what is the big deal? Well, the Sabbath wasn't a flippant thing, especially in Jesus' day. For instance, if you said something that's common for us to say today, like, ah, who needs Sabbath? I'll just rest when I'm dead, right? Well, you might actually get what you asked for. Remember, the Sabbath was the most important um, command to the Old Testament people. So it had the most extreme punishment for breaking it. Death. I know, death. Sabbath breakers were put to death. This is wild. Okay, so Exodus 31, it says, Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. For six days, work is to be done. But the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. Okay, that's extreme. Death? Really? So crazy idea, okay? This is a wild idea to us in the Protestant church. What if the Pharisees weren't legalists? What if they were just avoiding death, okay? Like we tend to look back and think that they're being legalistic. It's just a day off, and it is. But you could die. Like this is terrible. This is kind of something that I would want to be legalistic about. Are you with me? Like, not going 200 kilometers over the speed limit doesn't make you a legalist. You just don't want to die, right? They set up rules around the Sabbath so that people wouldn't die. And I sort of get that if I'm honest. And breaking Sabbath is also the reason why the Israelites are currently in exile. 
It's the reason that they're under the oppressive rule by the Roman Empire. It's, it's the reason why they're in this mess, because they didn't keep Sabbath. See, over and over in the Old Testament, God promised that this would happen. In Leviticus 26, God promised that if they didn't keep the Sabbath, they would be driven out of the land of Israel and somebody else would occupy it. Here's what it says. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out my sword and pursue you. I'm like, that is not good. Um, your land will be laid waste. Your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years. All the time it lies desolate and you are in a country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time it lies desolate. The land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. And that's exactly what happens. Over and over and over in the scriptures, God warns that this would happen if they don't keep the Sabbath. And Israel didn't keep the Sabbath, so they were driven from their land, exiled into the land of Babylon. Other nations ruled over them for decades. And when they finally returned back to the land of Israel, they're slaves. They're slaves just like when they were in Egypt. Rome is now ruling over them because they failed to keep the Sabbath holy. See, breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death, but it's also why they're in the mess that they find themselves. So if Sabbath was this big of a deal, how are they going to feel when a Jewish rabbi shows up and teaches people to walk straight up to the line of breaking the Sabbath? Jesus is walking on thin ice. Jesus is playing with fire. And they know how this goes. It leads to exile and destruction. It leads to death. And they know that from firsthand experience. If breaking the Sabbath was this big of a deal, they wanted to stay as far away from breaking it as possible. So they created clear lines of what to do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. It's called the Mishnah. And um, they didn't do this because they were legalists. They did this because they didn't want to die. They didn't want to be in exile. If Sabbath breaking is what got them into this mess, many um, Jewish rabbis thought that Sabbath keeping would be the thing that got them out. They actually believed that if the whole nation Sabbath for one day as a unity, the, the, the Messiah might come and the kingdom of God might be ushered in. This was a big deal for, for them. But because of this, because of these rules, Sabbath became a burden to be endured, not a gift to be enjoyed. It became about doing this and not doing that. It became about keeping the rules of Sabbath rather than keeping Sabbath itself. They no longer saw Sabbath as a gift, but it became a burden. And so it's easy for uh, us as modern, sophisticated Westerners to look back and see the hypocrisy in this. But are we any different? I would argue that Sabbath is just as much of a burden today. It was a burden back then, back then because they made it hard to keep it. For us, it's a burden because we've made it hard to keep it, too easy to break it. We're just as rigid about the Sabbath as the Pharisees. They were rigid about keeping it. We're rigid about breaking it. We think that we know better than God. We think that we don't need to Sabbath. Sure, maybe God needed to Sabbath, right? He's the old man in the sky. He just needed to take a nap. But me, psh, I don't need to Sabbath, right? That's what we tell ourselves. And the irony of that logic is that we think that we're stronger and smarter than God. And when we do this, we miss the whole point. It's a gift. It's a gift to be enjoyed. The Sabbath is foundational to human flourishing. It's not my notes, but let me just say this. One of the things that boggles my mind is one of the things that the Israelites were commanded to do was to give the ground a Sabbath every seven years. So if you planted something, you'd plant something for six years. And then on the seventh, you would let the, um, the ground stay um, fallow. Yeah, dormant. 
And what we do in our modern world is we want to produce more crops. We don't want to take a year off, so we, pr we spray it with chemicals and pesticides. And then we wonder, oh man, I wonder why everyone's allergic to gluten. Like, why are there so many health issues and autoimmune diseases? It's because we don't Sabbath. Sabbath is a gift from God. It's the way that the creation is supposed to or be ordered for human flourishing. And we can decide not to keep the Sabbath, but sometimes when you go against the grain of creation, you get splinters. Sabbath is simply living as God intended. When we Sabbath, we point to the world the way it's supposed to be, the way it was in Eden, and the way it will be one day in the future. It's a gift. That's so important. It leads to life and life to the full. It's not a burden to be endured. It's a gift to be enjoyed. And the Pharisees forgot this. So Jesus tells them this line, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So in other words, Jesus is saying, you weren't created for the sole purpose of keeping the Sabbath. Rather, the Sabbath was made to keep you. You don't exist for the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists for you. In other words, it's a gift, not a burden. And then Jesus says this very strange and provocative line. He says that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is a strange idea to us. We love the concept of Jesus being Lord. He's Lord of my life. He's Lord of my finances and on and on and on. But is he Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus challenged his audience by reminding them that they weren't made for the Sabbath. But Jesus challenges us today by telling us that he is Lord of the Sabbath. They needed to hear that the Sabbath wasn't about rules and laws, but about rest and delight. We need to hear that God is still the God of Sabbath. That we can go against the grain of creation, but we should not be surprised when we get splinters. We work more than any other culture in human history. We're glued to our devices. And mental health is at an all-time high. Prescription drug sales are through the roof. Depression, loneliness, and burnout are normative elements in our society. And we think we're not in Egypt. We work more than ever before, and we're more unhappy than ever before. This sounds like Egypt to me. So when Jesus says, quote, I am Lord, even of the Sabbath, this is a liberation call to leave the land of slavery behind. It's an invitation to a free life where we don't live to work. It's an invitation of a whole new way to live. So let's take a look at the next story. In Mark 3, 1, it says, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. When Jesus, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, their enemies, how they might kill Jesus. For Jesus, the Sabbath seemed to be a day of getting into trouble. For Jesus, it was a day to stir the pot, right? Jesus already offended the religious conservatives on the Sabbath. And so the, the very next Sabbath, what does he do? He goes into the synagogue and he teaches and he provokes the leaders even more. I love this, okay? So Jesus is already riding the line. He's already walking on thin ice. In fact, it says that some, quote, some of them, we're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So what does Jesus do in this situation? 
right? They just say, all right, everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes, and bam, he heals the guy when everyone's, you know, not looking. Or, he, or maybe he, he grabs the guy and he takes him to his office while no one is there and he heals the guy. No, what does he do? He, this guy doesn't even ask Jesus to do anything. He, he singles the guy out and he says, stand up in front of everyone. And he's like, uh, okay. And he says, stretch out your hand. And he's healed. If I was Jesus, I would call the band back up, do a little jig and throw a party. This guy just got healed. But what do the religious leaders do? They plan a way to kill Jesus. The irony is that it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath but it is okay to plan an assassination. This, this links back to when Jesus says, is it better to kill or to heal on the Sabbath? And this is them casting their vote. See, also notice in verse five that it says that Jesus was, quote, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, which is to say that Jesus can heal a withered heart, hand, but not a stubborn heart. Their hearts were hard because of the strictness of Sabbath. They couldn't see that the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of healing. The Sabbath was supposed to be a day that gives us life and heals our soul. We are like this man, shriveled and wasting away. We're tired and worn out, and our souls are shriveled and deformed. The Sabbath, according to Jesus, is a day of healing. In fact, what I love about this is Matthew tells the exact same two stories, but in front of these two stories, he gives these words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of Jesus right before these two stories on Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest for our souls. It's supposed to refresh the weary and burdened, and Jesus describes it as easy and light. Jesus invites us to get away with him and recover our lives. He invites us to experience the unforced rhythms of grace. This isn't about doing more. It's about doing less. It's about stopping to actually enjoy the abundant life that Jesus offers. A few years ago, when Laurel and I were in Greece, we um, were on this small little island called Naxos, and um, we rented this little ATV, and we just kind of like boogied around the the small little island, and we went from beach to beach. There's a picture of it here. We went from beach to beach, and we would just spend some time there and go swimming. And when we finally got to the end of the island, I saw on my phone that there was a location that was marked as cliff jumping. I was like, this sounds pretty fun. Um, So we got on our ATV, and we drove to where it was supposed to be, and the only thing there was a dead end and a sign saying, don't drive any further. So we did exactly what you would do, and we kept driving. And eventually we got to this place where it was perfect for jumping into the water. There's a picture of it right here. Yes. We got there and I thought, this looks really fun, but I'm terrified. I'm absolutely terrified. It's much bigger in person, trust me. The thoughts that were going through my mind is, what if something happens? What if I slip? What if I hit something and like die? Like, what if something happens? What if I don't do it right? These were the, the thoughts going through my mind. And I had to watch these tiny little kids do it over and over and over until I finally worked up the confidence to do it myself, right? And um, I finally decided to just jump. And then I jumped again. And then I jumped again and again and again. And the more I jumped, the more fun it became. And I was having the time of my life. And each time it became easier and easier to do. This is what starting Sabbath is like. 
It's like you're standing at the edge, scared to jump in, scared of what it might cost you, scared of what might happen. But once you do it a few times, you realize that there's nothing like it. It's almost like it's part of the created order. It's almost like it's part of your DNA. There's just something mysterious like, man, this is almost as if this is the way I was created to thrive, right? And you're probably thinking right now, there's no way I could keep Sabbath. I'm too busy. I've got kids. There's too much to do. And your list of excuses goes on and on. And you're like me standing at the edge of that cliff, scared to jump. But if you just took the first leap, you might just discover a whole new way to live. In the words of Jesus, you might actually discover rest for your soul. So where do you start? If you're here this morning, you're like, this sounds overwhelming. It's not about doing more. It's about doing less. It's not about a burden, but it's about a gift to be enjoyed. So where do you start? How do you practice Sabbath? Well, here's a few uh, practices or places to start. Number one, order your week. Sabbath isn't just a day of rest. It is an entire new way of ordering your life. It's six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. So it's not just about how you order one 24-hour day, but how you order your entire week. And you might need to reorder your life a bit. You might need to rework your schedule. And you most almost definitely need to cut some stuff out. So if you want to start, number one, order your week. Number two, prepare. You'll notice in all four Gospels, Jesus is died and, um, and he's placed in the tomb on the preparation day. This was the day of the week on Friday where Jews would, would prepare for the Sabbath. Um, so Sabbath keeping won't just happen by accident. You won't just like stumble into a Sabbath and find rest for your soul. It takes preparation. Uh, so what you can do is you can take some time the day before or maybe even just an hour leading up to Sabbath and do any shopping, clean your place, cut the grass, and do any work that needs to get done before the Sabbath. Uh, the way that Laurel and I do this is she goes to the grocery store and buys groceries and I clean the house and then we get together and we make supper for uh, the evening. Sabbath should be a day that we look forward to with excitement and joy. But anyone who has done Sabbath um, well will tell you that it takes a bit of planning and preparation, but it's worth it. Here's the irony of Sabbath. It actually takes hard work to rest well. It actually takes ordering the first six days of the week well and working hard in order to rest well. And the good news is that you get out of it what you put into it. So prepare. Number three, make it holy. This is my favorite one. It sounds the most like drab, but it's actually the best one, okay? Um, find a way to make Sabbath special. Make it fun. Make it like a holiday or a holy day, which is what that word means. Meaning it should feel like Christmas and your birthday coming every seven days, right? This is what it means to make something holy. The word holy means special or unique. So to make the Sabbath holy means to make it a day unlike any other day in the week. So go nuts, have fun, light a candle, open a good bottle of wine at dinner, have friends over, watch a movie, sleep in late, have pancakes, have sex, then have sex again, go dancing, live life, enjoy creation, let your soul experience God's goodness. See, Sabbath isn't just a day of saying no. It is a day of saying a capital Y-E-S. We only say no to things that hold us back from saying our loudest yes to life and life abundantly. So take a day and make it special. Live it fully, deeply, and remember what it's like to live again. Number four, rest. Simply ask yourself what it would it look like if I could spend 24 hours in such a way that it led to rest and flourishing for my soul. 
And then whatever that is, just do that, okay? Rest. Number five, repeat. Don't give up. When you first start practicing Sabbath, it feels like detoxing from hard drugs. I don't know that from experience, but that's what they tell me. You'll be thinking about all the work you need to do, the emails you didn't send, the tasks that are left undone, but don't worry. These are all signs that it's actually working. It feels like withdrawal because it is. You are leaving the land of Egypt behind, and like the Israelites, you want to go back to the land of slavery where they have leeks and onions, but keep with it. And so to end, here's the invitation of Jesus. Stand with me. And in a posture of rest and receiving, just place your hands in front of you. We serve a father in the words of Jesus who longs to give good gifts to his children. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.